Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 11, Episode 12, Artists of the Early Edo Period, Bonus Episode. I hope it has become clear by this point in the season that the Edo Bakufu was a generally restrictive, reactionary government whose default posture towards innovation and progress was wary suspicion. However, as I hope it has also become clear, the shogunate's ability to actually restrict unwanted behaviors and practices was usually quite limited. It was one thing to issue an edict declaring something illegal, quite another to have the power to enforce such embargoes. Thus, in the field of aesthetic development, Japan continued to make new inroads into many different kinds of art, in diverse fields like sculpture, pottery, performance arts, and even engineering. The early Edo period bore witness to many such developments, and next season we will see how Western influences encouraged an expansion of Japan's aesthetic imagination and ingenuity after Tokugawa Yoshimune's repeal of the ban on Western literature. We will begin our exploration of the early Edo period's artistic development with the birth of Kabuki Theater, which we previously discussed briefly in episode 10, The Pax Edo. In 1603, near the beginning of the Edo period, a new type of theatrical art form emerged thanks to the efforts of Yujo sex workers in the vicinity of Kyoto following the direction of a remarkable young woman. Izumo Okuni was born in 1578 and, as her name suggests, was connected to the Grand Shrine of Izumo. The daughter of a blacksmith who worked for the shrine, she trained as a miko, or shrine maiden, and was well known for her beauty and graceful skill at traditional dance. A natural performer, she was dispatched by the shrine's leadership to Kyoto, where they expected her to solicit contributions for the shrine through the performance of holy dances and songs, a common fundraising practice. While in Kyoto in 1603, she recruited a motley crew of outcast women, many of whom were sex workers, and organized a performance on a dry riverbed that paralleled a busy street in Kyoto. The ensuing drama, which featured popular dance, music, and extremely risque storylines, proved incredibly popular among the residents of the old capital, and it wasn't long before the imperial court began to request exclusive private performances. This new form of theater was named kabuki, which literally translates to leaning, but which figuratively means strange or unusual in Japanese. Regardless of any strangeness or unusuality, kabuki became an extremely popular performance art during the Edo period, and the style caught on with various red-light districts around the nation, who used such performances to attract new clientele and excite their existing customer base. This early period of kabuki was entirely female, and the women involved would dress as men when needed. Kabuki stories in the art's earliest phases were mostly raunchy tales of important officials having romantic trysts with prostitutes or other inappropriate romantic partners. In addition to being credited with Kabuki's creation, Izumo Okuni is also given credit for a new type of performance space, a narrow extension of the main stage that jutted into the audience and allowed the play to take place in their midst. It remains a staple of Kabuki theater, though today that central stage protrusion extends much longer and is called hanamichi, meaning path of flowers. 
1610, Izumo Okuni retired from theater and public life. Unfortunately, nothing is known with certainty about her life afterward. Some accounts claim that she died later that year, while others mark her death as late as 1640. Whatever the case, she left behind a new form of theater which is today counted among the best known of Japan's cultural institutions. In spite of the shogunate's attempts at banning kabuki theater, it became a mainstay of entertainment during the Edo period and beyond. Like other forms of live theater in Western Europe, it gradually came to be accepted as mainstream, and some of its composers attained an elevated status as the great bards of their day. One such bard was Chikamatsu Monzaimon. Born the son of a ronin in 1653, Monzaimon had served as a page for a minor noble family in Kyoto during his youth, but gradually moved away from samurai lifestyle and toward the creative performance arts. In 1683, he composed a puppet play called Jojuri at the time, but now known by the modern name Bunraku, about the revenge of the Soga brothers, which is the earliest of his known plays. Fifteen other plays before this are sometimes claimed to have been written by Monzaimon, but their authorship is uncertain. He would go on to write many plays, both Bunraku and Kabuki, eventually garnering over 130 scripts between 1683 and 1725. The most well-known of his plays were stories of tragic star-crossed lovers whose lives usually ended in suicide. His most popular play, however, was called Kokusen Yakasen, whose title translates to The Battles of Koshinga. This play loosely followed the historical transition from the Ming Dynasty to the Qing, celebrating the adventures of Zheng Chonggong, also known as Koshinga. We discussed Zheng Chonggong in Episode 7, The Rise of the Qing Dynasty. He was the ruler of Taiwan for a time and supported the southern Ming Dynasty, but eventually his descendants were defeated by the Qing. In Monzaimon's play, Koshinga and his family soundly defeat the Qing dynasty and place Emperor Yongli on the throne and restore the Ming dynasty. Considering his repertoire includes suicidal love stories and history plays, it's not entirely incorrect to consider Chikamatsu Monzaimon to be the Japanese version of William Shakespeare. His body of work is impressive, and is made more impressive by the fact that he was one of the first people to make an actual career out of writing kabuki and bunraku plays. Although Chikamatsu Monzaimon's works have not enjoyed the same level of film adaptation as those of Shakespeare, he enjoys the modern distinction of having a Naruto character named after him, as well as one of the digital pets in the show Digimon. One of the most interesting visual artists of the early Edo period may have never existed. Many sculptures which are still on display at temples and shrines throughout Japan are attributed to a man known as Hidari Jingoro. His work ranges from images of deities to mythical animals, though his most famous sculpture is a wood carving of a sleeping cat called Nemuri Neko. He worked in a variety of artisanal fields throughout his life, and there is no shortage of folk stories surrounding him. The name Hidari means left side in Japanese. One story claims that other sculptors were jealous of Jingoro's work, so they attacked him and cut off his right arm. This maiming did not succeed in ending his career, however, because he was left-handed. Although another story claims that his right hand was cut off while he was apprenticing as a swordsmith, so we can't really be sure. 
One of the most famous folk tales of this artist claims that he created a life-size sculpture based on a beautiful woman he had seen. He would spend time with this sculpture, drinking sake and eating in its presence, and eventually it began to mimic his movements. When he showed the sculpture its own reflection in a mirror, it came fully to life and became a real woman. This story is particularly interesting for its similarity to the Greek myth of Pygmalion, in which the titular sculpture made a statue of a woman from ivory and the goddess Aphrodite brought it to life. As to whether he really existed, I believe a case can be made that there was a sculptor named Hidari Jingoro, and that he did indeed create some beautiful works of art. However, Logically, it makes sense that shrines and temples around the nation would have wanted to increase their patronage by claiming that some of their deity statues or relief carvings were created by the famous Jingoro, trying to benefit from increased tourism. There is an interesting short film on YouTube that portrays a fantasy version of Jingoro which, while somewhat violent, is definitely worth a watch. I'll insert a link to it in the description of today's episode if you'd like to see it for yourself. Kabuki and bunraku plays were far from the only forms of creative writing that enjoyed creation during the Edo period. During the 1600s, Japanese poetry would, at long last, take the form most familiar to Western audiences. Yes, it is finally time to discuss the famous haiku. Following a syllabic pattern of 575, haiku began as a somewhat vulgar offshoot of the more high-minded renga, which featured a 57577 stanza pattern and was usually undertaken as a collaborative effort. The very first three lines of a renga, which follows the 575 syllabic pattern, were known as hokku. Standalone hokku became more common during the early Edo period, and the new name of haiku would not be coined until the late 1800s to refer to the hokkus of the 16 and 1700s. We simply cannot discuss the haiku of the 1600s without discussing their great pioneer, the legendary Japanese poet Matsuo Basho. If you have taken a college-level world history class, you have probably discussed Basho. Born to a samurai family in Iga province in 1644, Matsuo Basho was allegedly trained in ninjutsu and went on to serve as a page to one Todo Yoshitada. It was in Yoshitada's service that Basho discovered his love of poetry, and after Yoshitada's death in 1666, he allegedly wandered the land and continued composing poetry, much of which was published through various outlets like a compilation called The Seashell Game. In 1672, he moved to Edo to continue his study of poetry and was welcomed with open arms by the literati of the city. Basho's work came to define haiku as being distinct not only for its syllable count, but for its content as well. Haiku preferred natural imagery to the artificial. Later scholars would point to kigo, which were words within a haiku that symbolized the season in which the poem took place, as well as kireji, or cutting words, which marked a change in the composer's thought within the poem itself, or sometimes summed up the poem in a surprising way if they came at the end. Basho's poetry itself was often surprising and even funny, though the sardonic tone is sometimes lost on modern audiences. In one example, he seems to be praising the shogun, but the poem itself is usually considered sarcastic. It reads thus, Kapitan mo tsukaba wasakeri kimi ga haru. The Dutchman, too, kneel before his lordship. Spring, under his reign. 
By the late 1670s, Bachot was one of the most celebrated poets of his time, and was frequently invited to poetry parties and to submit his poems to anthologies of his day. He quickly began moving in the top literary circles of the shogunate capital, and by the early 1680s he had become a famous teacher of poetry and was supported by devoted students. Like many before and since who have reached the upper echelons of fame in their field, however, Bachot struggled with feelings of alienation and depression. He turned to Zen meditation but found no relief. The early 1680s brought several successive crises into his life. In 1682, his home, a humble hut built by his students, burned down in one of Edo's periodic fires. The next year, his mother died. In 1684, determined to regain a sense of peace in his life, Bachot left Edo and traveled by foot along the highways of Kanto on what would become the first of his famous wandering trips. He traveled to his former home in Iga province and to Kyoto, meeting people along the road, making friends, and especially enjoying the changing scenery. He returned to Edo in 1685 and took up his former work as a teacher and poet once more. He would take three more such trips, usually after staying in Edo for a year. His fourth trip was an epic three-year journey throughout Tohoku, during which he took copious notes and eventually published a travelogue called Oku no Hosomichi, which means The Narrow Road to the Deep North. He published this in 1694, and like much of his other published work, it was an instant hit. Bachot's final years were, somewhat unsurprisingly, very difficult. Still struggling with mental issues, at one point he shut himself inside his home for a month and refused all visitors. In the summer of 1694, he departed Edo to take another journey. He traveled to Osaka after stopping over in Ueno and Kyoto. While in Osaka, he grew ill and died, surrounded by his most devoted students. Bachot's fame continues to live on today, especially in his most famous poem, which he composed after his first journey from Edo. It reads, Furu ike ya, kawazu tobikomu mizu no oto. An ancient pond. A frog jumps in. The splash of water. In the realm of painting, the early Edo period saw the birth of a new style called ukiyo-e. The term ukiyo-e actually means pictures of the floating world, and its earliest contributions were exactly that, beautifully painted pictures of sex workers. It soon evolved into paintings of sumo wrestlers, kabuki actors, scenes from history, folk tales, landscapes, and animal life. Bright colors and striking compositions are key features of ukiyo-e, but what makes it truly unique in Japanese history is how its creators came to embrace the emerging technology of woodblock printing. While movable type printing was already heavily utilized by bookmakers seeking to slake the endless thirst of the increasingly literate Japanese population, using woodblocks to print images was a rather new concept. With ukiyo-e images, books could now contain illustrations along with text, and the stories contained within their pages could come more fully alive. What made ukiyo-e especially appealing to the masses and especially appreciated by historians was that its artists tended to produce scenes from the everyday lives of common people. 
Peasant farmers working in a field, porters lifting heavy goods, and even paintings of rowdy crowds at kabuki theaters were popular subject matters. Many ukiyo-e paintings featured erotic situations, so I wouldn't recommend searching the internet for ukiyo-e on your work computer. However, the style, expressions, and subjects make for an invaluable source of visual history from the Edo period. We will discuss the life of one especially famous master of ukiyo-e next season, but Hokusai, creator of the famous big wave ukiyo-e, is still a few decades away. The early Edo period not only saw continued advancements in existing art forms, but the creation of entirely new styles and techniques. Kabuki, ukiyo-e, and haiku all had their origins in the early reign of the Edo shogunate, and would continue being developed as art forms in their own right as the bakufu continued to govern for more than a hundred years after the death of Yoshimune. We'll have a lot more to say about their development next season. Meanwhile, next time we will venture into the twilight world of the samurai that was the early 1600s as we follow the life, times, and career of a famous duelist and ronin whose exploits continue to be the stuff of legend and whose written work on strategy and tactics continues to shed light on the general conduct of the samurai. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan. Thank <laughs> you.